Hello everyone and welcome to the second of the Sydney-based podcast series of the Product Coalition. Welcome to Josh Wormer who's joined us. Thank you. Great to have you here, Josh. Uh, thanks for being brave and joining me um, in this Sydney session. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and having a listen to this podcast or if you're watching on YouTube. I'd like to firstly give a shout out to BrainMates, our location sponsor for this Sydney-based podcast. BrainMates is a product management training and consulting team based in Australia, New Zealand and Denver in USA. You can find out more about the BrainMates three-day course for product folks on the 9th of December in Denver at brainmates.com.au. If you just discovered Product Coalition, welcome. We're a global product management community that started out back in 2014 as uh, productcoalition.com. Since then, we've grown to also a Slack community of 5,000 product managers. That's free to join. You can visit productcoalition.com to grab yourself a Slack invite. If you'd like to watch this podcast, you can visit YouTube and search Product Coalition. And Product Coalition is 100% funded by community support. If you'd like to support the podcast, the publication, the Slack community, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash productco. Josh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> great, great to have you here. Um, we're going to get stuck in today in, into a topic um, that is really familiar with, so I'm really excited to, to chat through this with you. It, it's called more than words, in, in, and that's the, uh, for me the really important but important part. More than words, embedding product and innovation-led thinking throughout your organisation. Yeah. Before we get stuck into that, though, and before we learn a little bit about yourself, are you born in Sydney? I am. Born and bred Sydney. Born and, born and raised. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you're gonna you, hopefully you're gonna do well on these questions. Then, so we've got pub pub quiz so. style yeah. questions. Um, so, firstly, uh, where does the Sydney Harbour Bridge rank in terms of world's longest bridges? Oh, I'm going to be hopeless at these. <laughs> um, world's longest. Outside the top ten, maybe twenty. No, you plan it cool, I think. You plan it cool. You underestimate. It's, it's fifth in the world. The oh. fifth longest spanning oh. arch bridge, according to the Guinness World Records. Yeah, I told you I'd be hopeful of these questions. <laughs> okay. The next one uh, is relevant to the seat you're sat on. So, cool. Barangaroo, yes. price per square metre. For a price per square metre of dirt in Barangaroo, what's it worth? Be up there. Thousands. Um... Five grand per square metre? According to hopefully a trusted internet source that I found, $210,000 a square metre. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Welcome to Sydney. Should have bought some of that yeah, welcome to 20 years ago. Um, oldest public building in the CBD? Oldest public building. Maybe the, the post office up in Martin Place? The GPI? Yeah. No, I'll give you another guess. Yeah. Give us a second one. Oh, what else is up there? Maybe something down in the rocks. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking the rocks, but it's tied to the Sydney CBD. So I'll, I'll give it for you. Yeah, please, Sydney please Mint. put me out of misery. Sydney Mint. Sydney Mint, all right. If any of your <laughs> school teachers are listening. <laughs> that would be horrifying. <laughs> um, to get to know you a bit more personally, yeah. Josh, um, what's your, what's your favourite spot by the water in Sydney? Uh, my favourite spot would be um, probably anywhere along that Bondi to Bronte kind of coastal walk. Okay. Um, but there's some great spots up as well. If you go the other direction up the hill, up into Dover Heights and towards the towards South Head Point, um, 
all along the coast. For those listening around the world, which direction from the centre of Sydney? Uh, we're, going, we're going east and, and we're going east, towards, right. yeah, towards Bondi Beach. It's probably right, what okay. most people would be. Go to Bondi and then with, turn yeah. right? Go to Bondi and you can turn right or turn left. If you turn left, you go up a hill, right. get to the heights and the cliffs. If you turn right, you end up going along a few different beaches, right. coastal route, which is beautiful. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I'd yeah. love to hear these tips from yeah. insiders. Um, Favourite meetup or conference that, that you enjoy in, my, in Sydney? Um, I'd have to say, and I'm not just saying it because we're at Brainmates, but leading the product conference uh, just took place last week. Um, it's one I always go to and, and always have a good time, always learn something new, always meet some good people. So really enjoy that one. Right. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you. Let's get started, but before we do, um, talk about embedding product and innovation thinking. Sure. Tell me about you. What's your What's been your journey? Um, so my journey is a real um, rocky ride, probably a bit different. So I started out, um, came from a, a science and a psychology background. I uh, wanted to get into intelligence. Uh, got into working in kind of criminal intelligence initially in my career. Shifted from that because didn't love working in. Um, uh, well, I love the work, the, the, the structure and the constraints working in governing that kind of organisation probably wasn't my cup of tea. Um, moved out, started working um, more with uh, kind of scaling tech companies that from overseas looking to come into Australia. Really started seeing innovation at play and, and, and done well. So a lot of uh, Israeli tech companies, a lot of US tech companies. Um, and then from there started working with kind of smaller startups locally, uh, as well as some bigger brands, and then from there moved into consulting. Um, dabbled myself in a few different businesses as well along the way, so a bit of a journey. But I think a lot of uh, a lot of product managers have a don't have a straight path; they come from all walks of life. Indeed. So yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Um, I, I love the psychology foundation there as well. Yeah. That's, yeah. um, is, has that stood you in good stead throughout those other experiences? Yeah, it has. I think you know understand. Uh, I initially started as a, as a commerce um, commerce undergrad and I, and I shifted about it half a, about a semester in or two semesters in psychology uh, and that was really based on the fact that no matter where I went in life I knew understanding human behaviour was going to be kind of core to whatever I do uh, and it's been true so I'm glad I got that decision right back in the day. Right. <laughs> it's going to help me in good stead, yeah, especially with product. Fantastic. Um, tell you what, going back probably about two years ago, I actually come to Sydney for a weekend um psychology course in transactional analysis does that ring any bells from your studies transactional no no transactional analysis <laughs> hopefully i'm very niche. hopefully i'm yeah i'm getting it right but um I, I did find it fascinating obviously anything that involves users interacting with products we all uh, love to yeah. witness user behavior yeah. and it always catches yeah. people off guard and, yeah. and uh, is, is really enjoyable so um today we want we're going to talk about the topic titles more than words embedding product and innovation-led thinking throughout your organisation. Yeah. Um, could you talk about, maybe to get us going, some of your background as to why this is a meaningful topic for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's meaningful for me. So I've, I've been involved in, in and working with startups and, and, and I've seen product management done very well. A couple of years ago, um, I moved into the, into the consulting world um, and started consulting to more traditional hierarchical organisations, more traditional enterprise. 
and I started seeing product done very, very badly. And I started wondering why is there this discrepancy? Like why can't, you know, it, it's not, um, why do you need to be in a garage or why do you need to wear a T-shirt to build product? Why can't guys in traditional organisations build product just as well? Because it's got nothing to do with those superficial things. And what are those more internal things? What are those principles? What are those behaviours? What's that kind of mindset that, that um, you know, previous kind of startups or scale-ups get right that these traditional organisations just aren't nailing? Right, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so when, when we talk about, you've got here product and innovation-led thinking. Firstly, do you see a difference between product thinking and innovation thinking? Or are they symbiotic? Um, yeah, I think innovation is just more of that bigger leap. I think you can, product thinking is is can be a bit more incremental, whereas innovation is really you know jumping that curve, that, that bigger incremental leap forward. Um, and often it kind of plays more, at least for me, it kind of plays more at that uh, early stage of the product life cycle, kind of around that, the, the beginning phase. Um, the more established that product gets, the more it kind of, once it's kind of found product market fit, kind of the, not that there's no innovation or it's not important to be innovative, but the 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 breadth of it or the size of it kind of becomes scaled down a little bit more specific. And I like to probably play more where it's far far more open, you know, right. go either way and kind of far more uncertain and, and ambiguous. Yep. High risks, yeah. lots of ambiguity, Correct. lots of stuff outside yeah. of control. Yeah. Awesome. Um, in this topic title, we, we've opened it with more than words. Um, in the world of innovation, yeah. a term that gets thrown around quite recently is is the theatre of innovation, particularly yeah. at the enterprise and um, corporate public listed company. Yeah. Um, do, do you... See a lot of people talking innovation, but not acting innovation. I see a lot of yeah, hundred percent. Right, a lot okay. of People talking innovation, talking agile, talking customer centricity. Right. Very little uh, action oriented behaviour to get to those results. So uh, maybe so I'll give give you an example. So a lot of what we see with with uh, innovation and kind of the more than words theme that you're talking about is they'll go out do some research. They'll go out and synthesise that, and and they'll take some time and they'll come back and present that as, as a deck or as a presentation and then they'll file that away somewhere, right? So they've got an idea, they've found a problem, they've, they've synthesised that, they've maybe come up with potential, potential solutions or ideas to solve it and that's where it, that's where it, that's where it stays. And I guess my way of thinking about it is, is a lot of people can come with ideas and most of those ideas will be pretty bad, some of them will be good but you need to actually go and action those ideas. You need to go out and, and, and test and validate those ideas and see whether they've got legs or not. So stopping at that point where, cool, we've got a problem and here's some ideas that we can talk about, for me is useless unless you can actually go out and execute on those ideas and, and see whether they sink or swim in the real world. Right, okay. And can, can I ask, uh, in where these ideas exist in existing businesses, Yeah. Uh, when it comes to strategic alignment, particularly for for the bigger companies, I remember back in the day the um, McKinsey model of horizons one, two, yeah. and three, etc. Uh, how do you suggest alignment or intentional disalignment to to company strategy? Um, yeah. What are you seeing in trends in that space? I mean, uh, as I say, I remember like horizons three stuff being all of the nothing to do with the P and L or the day to day business of a yeah. company yeah. innovation playground that. People just did any old crazy idea yeah. over there, and then Horizon yeah. One was that incremental 
improvement and in innovating on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. What, what are you seeing in terms of trends or behaviours or what's being done well or not done well in, in those types of... Yeah, uh, maybe a, two things on that. So I think a good place to start is looking at the DNA of that, of that company. And when I say looking at the DNA, what are the genetics? So things like what market do they go after? What's their product? What are their channels to market? Uh, who are their customers? Uh, what are their core kind of comp competencies and capabilities that they have? And then once, what are they, once they've got that, how can they start maybe changing some of those things? Maybe one of those fields or two of those fields or, or three of those fields. And I guess the more fields you're changing at a time, the more disruptive you're being in terms of going maybe to a um, you know, parallel market or to a completely new market. And the other thing I'll say on that is, is in terms of alignment, what I see is um, I guess what we, tr what we see as a big problem often is, is autonomy not, given, not being given to the product managers <laughs> or to the teams. And when we do get autonomy given to those product managers and those product teams, what we then see is, well, how do we, we've got questions around well, how do we keep that alignment? Um, what we often recommend is looking at some kind of, you know, um, objectives frameworks, maybe OKRs to kind of right. make sure that the outcomes are aligned, but the actual uh, things that we're doing and, and how we're doing it is completely up and up to the teams, not to the people who are building those things. Right. And as long as we're moving towards achieving that outcome, we're all moving that same direction. Okay, I'm, I'm keen to get your thoughts on, you mentioned earlier around bad ideas. Yeah. Um, and if I think about being hypothesis-led yeah. in terms of tackling innovation yeah. or, or um, product improvement, um, what have you seen work or not work uh, from an organisational perspective around that safe-to-fail culture? Yeah. Because OKRs can can get a thing done. Yeah. And, so, you know, I've personally seen it when OKRs, the the, the anti-patterns of OKRs, people tying it to KPIs and delivering a thing and stuff yeah. like that start to creep in. Yeah. Then people deliver the OKR, not yeah. necessarily a more meaningful outcome. Yeah. Um, safe to fail culture. Um, I think this is something, again, that's often paid lip service to. Okay. Um, for me, I think, the best product managers are the ones that don't fear risk, uh, and and uh, and I think like a, I heard a good way of kind of describing it is, you know, if you're someone that when you're kind of walking along a trail and you can't see around the bend and it's kind of late in the day, are you that person that wants to keep walking to see what's around that point, or are you the person that's like, oh no, it's kind of too much. I don't want to keep going. It's a bit too much risk for me. Um, but, but I think the, those kinds of people, when they go into these larger organisations and they're scared of risk, it kind of is like they're at odds right. and it doesn't enable them to kind of do the work they need to do, take the risk they need to take. Um, for me, kind of the way I like to put it is that um, building product the right way, engaging with your customers in a meaningful way is actually the best way to mitigate risk that, 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 we, that, yeah, that companies have because you're actually getting data and you're validating data and you're making decisions based on validations that you've had out in the field as opposed to opinions that you've got, uh, you know, in a boardroom. So, um, you know, being able to, to understand your customer and being able to go and test things in a small way where, you know, if it does fail or when it does fail, I should say, the loss is actually quite minimal, but the, but the, the, the amount that you learn is so huge and will enable you to progress and win the next time or the time after. We've touched on a few things that may hold organisations back. What, what is there that, that 
in addition to that, that holds traditional organisations back from being product led um, as an entire organisation, and that can be broad sweeping. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the thing that I see more kind of super common is that um, the business stakeholders or, or, or the business units want to give too much direction and, and give too many requirements and, and really have the control over what the product teams do. And, and what you see, and it's, it's what Marty Kagan often says, is the, um, you know, the product teams end up existing to serve the business rather than existing to serve the customer in ways, ways that deliver value to the business. So um, it's, it's, it's easier to get product, new product managers, new product owners up to speed in terms of how they should deliver product and take on that accountability than it is to break that, um, you know, that level of mistrust from business to to tech or business to the product teams. And as much as the the product managers and the product owners need to step up and take accountability and start owning more of a product than just prioritizing a backlog, yep. the the business stakeholders need to release that that control so they can actually take up that slack and start driving it forward. Right. Okay. Can can I ask? Um, in my experience, I've seen. Products, sorry, organisations committing to being innovation-led or product-led, and a, a common what feels like constraint that that goes against that statement is the financial model within the organisation yeah. is exactly the same as it was yeah. twenty years ago. Yeah. What, what have you seen? Is that common? And and by that I talk about the impact being that you've got to predict twelve months worth of money that you need yeah. and and therefore you start to get yeah pushed down into a tunnel um, yeah, when you're it, trying to be very divergent in your thinking yeah it is it is common um they are operating on kind of annual budget cycles that they plan ahead for the 12 for 12 months i think it really i think if you're a more um mature product you're more operationalized that can kind of work but when you're an earlier stage product and Extreme experimental, it doesn't work. So, so what I see work well is to kind of break it up into those two groups. So, you kind of have a, a house or a hub for for these kind of more experimental early stage products. A bunch of bets that you're placing. Some of them will come off, some of them won't, and you fund them appropriately. So, a little bit of funding based on kind of this, what stage they're at, and if they prove their worth or if they kind of validate their basic assumptions and and, and it's looking to be viable, then a bit more money for an extended period of time and again stop there see how they're going and then at some point if they've if they've reached that product market fit and you think it's actually going to you know now at a point to scale then maybe we start looking to operationalize that and then we move houses or we kind of move next door into that more um, operational uh, group of products where they kind of um, operate in that with that yearly um, funding model but they are two different they're two different worlds i think for product and, and they require two different um, mindsets around how they're funded and, and how they're looked at. I can imagine the difference between how VC worries about his money being spent in the next 12 months and how a CFO <coughs> worries about money yeah. being spent in the next 12 months yeah. being being very different. Yeah. Have you had experiences with, with building products for more of the, the startups that are VC-backed than, than enterprise-backed at all? Um, yeah, I think with... With the VCs, they understand they're looking for different metrics, right? right. Um, they're looking for for metrics that um, are promising, will kind of sh- promise future growth, and and then once and with the understanding that once they've 
once they start scaling, the costs that are attributed to kind of the operational running of that organisation will come down through diminishing returns. So, and then that kind of that margin is going to boom and then they get that hockey stick growth. Whereas I think CFOs, on the other hand, don't have that view. And, and I understand where the CFOs and C-suites come from. They've got pressure from the board. They've got to give deliver short-term results. Um, and it puts them in a difficult position unless they're super brave or, or they're, you know, they're these really impressive leaders that can make those decisions and say, we need to back stuff, not just for now, but also for three years, five years, ten years' time. Because if we don't, in three years, five years, ten years' time, we may not be sitting here having this conversation. So it does take a, it takes a big leader to kind of have those conversations and make those decisions. Right. Yep. Yep. Great. Um, when we talk about... Let's go into delivering a product. Yeah. Um, so let's put the experience, say, front and front and centre. Sure. What, what, what's your thoughts on the customer experience and um, accountability and responsibility that on the delivery teams that are delivering innovation in these companies? Um, so customer. So I think customer experience has to be their bread and butter. First of all, I also think customer experience is not just in the product teams. Customer experience is something that is. It should be widespread throughout an organisation, whether you're on the front lines, you know, selling, whether you're on back office, you know, doing support, answering calls, whether you're, um, you know, whether you're a product team that's building product for your customers, it is everyone's responsibility to be customer centric and, and to think that way. Um, but I think for product teams and particularly um, product managers, it should be their bread and butter. A lot of the times, it's not. They, they, I think a lot of product owners we see in some of these enterprises come more from a, a technical background, maybe a BA background, and, and they rely quite heavily on their on the UX person to be that customer voice. But if you're building a product and you're the product manager, from my opinion, like customer has to be your bread and butter. Like it has to be something that's hugely in your wheelhouse to be able to um, not only just understand that problem, but kind of solve that problem and continue continually solve problems for that customer group. Completely agree, 100%. Uh, yeah. For me, product management is the is the voice of the customer and um, continually advocating from the outside, from the customer's perspective. Um, and really hearing you earlier on around the pressures from many corporations that the product managers may start off externally focused on the customer, but yeah. due to the pressures and movement within the business, can quite easily end up being internally focused yeah. due, due to those pressures. And I'm sure Brainmates as a training organisation um, probably cover that type of stuff. I'm keen to, to touch on when we talk about product and innovation-led thinking, how, how a consultant tackles that differently to someone who might be listening to this podcast who hasn't got the ability to bring in um, consulting or management sort of ex- externals yeah. to support them. What, what could people who are living and breeding product management do without the help of externals? We often come in with a lot of weight because, you know, senior management are bringing the externals in to show everyone a better way or deliver better outcomes. Yeah. Um, but, but what do you see that people could be getting on with internally with an organisation? I appreciate there's no context for that, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I might just kind of because um, I think with consultants, we often come in Yes, we kind of have a bit more weight coming as an external, but we often get brought in for a very specific deliverable or at least a very specific thing in, in, in the client's mind and it's you know they have an idea around how something should be or, or kind of what they want to see happen. Uh, and sometimes we get there and it's maybe not the right thing or maybe it's not the only thing. There's other things we should explore. So 
and this is where probably there's that commonality between consultants and people in internal companies is that we need to be able to influence different people at different stages. Um, and I think for me, the thing that is um, most important in, in, in enabling that is to be able to develop that, that level of trust and rapport with those people so that they value your input and, and actually um, kind of uh, take that input and, and they're receptive to that influence that you're trying to have on them. Um, without trust, for me, as a, as a client, and, and I think also when you're internal, you'll struggle to get anywhere. So for me, build that trust first and then use that trust to start influencing them in the right direction. Fantastic. When I think about everything that's taught about product management out of books, online courses, etc., these soft skills um, yeah. are, are so valuable. Um, this is the art of product management on yeah. a day-to-day basis as yeah. opposed to the, the science, do as I say, not as I do, yeah, exactly. that, that can often happen. Um, f- fantastic. Um, can I ask, uh, what have you enjoyed most in the world of product throughout, throughout your career? What's, what's, a, what's been a standout product or moment or um, impactful idea that you've had? Um, what's been the most impactful um, for me I think just seeing the, maybe the shift locally from in terms of product and, and how it's kind of evolving in terms of the, the local community and I think you know it used to be maybe 10 years ago um, if you came from a bit of a radical background by you know you, you kind of live by this like build measure learn kind of philosophy or you're more kind of experimental in how you approach problems and, and do these crazy things like speak to customers. Um, you, you kind of look look down upon and you kind of you know, not someone's going to fit into this organisation or fit into this kind of way of working of what we're trying to do. And now it's really kind of done on 180 and they're the people that they not only kind of want to pull in, but obviously they need to pull these people in if they want to survive. And um, to see, you know, the market now valuing these skills so highly um, from where I was maybe 10 years ago where it was just toe the line and get in, you know, follow the follow this way of thinking that we're telling you to think. It's, um, for me, that's kind of the most impactful thing. Great. Thank you. Yeah, there's certainly a maturity shift going on and I see it reflected in the conferences like at Leading a Product. Yeah. Um, I like the, uh, um, I think it's the product board definition of us moving into the age of product excellence yeah. in the in the years ahead, uh, 2020 and beyond. Yeah, This has been great, Josh. Awesome. It's been great being here. No, I've really enjoyed talking through this. As I say, I've had some personal career experiences similar to what we've been able to share today. So yeah. it's um, great to be able to talk to, to, talk to them. Um, thank you for yourself for joining thank me. You. Thank you for everyone who's listened and, and watched through this. Thank you also to BrainMates as our location sponsor here in Sydney for this seri- Sydney-based series. And uh, I look forward to sharing another guest with you all very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.